This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. You know, when you think about a lot of the early landscape paintings of the Northwest, they were painted in that kind of 19th century romantic, this prettifying of the wild, almost the taming of the wilderness. She she wasn't taming it. She was letting it be frowsy. She was letting it be complicated and then trying to express that visually. Hey, everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're talking about the early 20th century artist, Emily Carr, whose vibrant paintings managed to truly capture the mystery and majesty of the forests of the Pacific Northwest. If you haven't already seen the video, which includes images of her work, we suggest you stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. Emily Carr was born and raised in colonial Victoria, British Columbia. She lived from 1871 to 1945 and spent most of her life there, although she studied art in San Francisco, London, and Paris. Her work was heavily influenced by the art she encountered, the poles and figures of First Nations people, the Fauvists of Europe, French Impressionists, and German Expressionists. Carr was eccentric, often worked in solitude. She was a female artist in a profession that was male-dominated. For a time, she supported herself running a boarding house. She walked around Victoria with a pet monkey and assorted other pets in a baby carriage. She said her hometown folks were surprised that her years in London had not turned her into a proper English lady. Yeah, my I guess my first question for you is, how did you first discover Emily Carr's work? I mean, do you remember stumbling across it at some point? I do. It was sometime in the 1990s. And I read something about her, and I got interested, and I think I I looked her up online, and my wife turned out to be a big fan of her work. Mm. And uh, so at some point, um, this would probably be, I don't know, early 2000s, can't remember the year, but we uh, took the train up to Vancouver and went to an Emily Carr show that they were having at the Art Museum in downtown Vancouver. Mm. And we were just blown away. You know, it was just amazing stuff. And um, we actually bought a a big, you know, four-color poster and had it professionally framed, this gorgeous uh, red cedar tree trunk. And it actually hangs in our bedroom. Uh, Well, it hung there until I knocked it down. Oh. We need to get the frame fixed. But we've we've had it in, in our apartment you know, for the last 15 years or so. Oh, wow. And it just is this, yeah, this just beautiful image that captures something about red cedars and the, the rainforest and whatnot that just resonates with us. And when you were in the Vancouver exhibit of her work, I, I'm just curious about the size. Did she do sort of large paintings or all sizes, small or... Yeah, they're kind of all sizes, as I remember, but but a lot of them aren't, they're not huge, mm-hmm. you know. In some cases, you could see how she repeats imagery mm-hmm. or aspects of, 
of her imagery over and over again. But over her career, there's a wide variety of painting, painting styles. The, the period that speaks to me is her later period. It's, it's in the 1930s, 40s, where she really is focusing a lot on what's in the forest, trying to capture the energy of Cascadia, Cascadian forested areas. You know, she's very rooted in British Columbia. She's very rooted on Vancouver Island in terms of a lot of her subjects. Earlier, she painted a lot of imagery of First Nations, you know, totem poles, so-called, and, you know, story poles, you know, the kinds of carvings that would often be seen kind of decaying in the woods, kind of a romantic view of some of these kinds of things. And, you know, it was it was the painting of capturing the sort of indigenous um, artwork in her art that brought her to some attention, I think, nationally. Mm. And, you know, earlier in her career, the Canadian art scene was evolving. It was kind of East Coast-centric or Eastern Canada-centric. But a lot of images were being created for travel posters and just mm -hmm. um, kind of introducing the rest of Canada to the Pacific Northwestern section of Canada with these great images. And so there was a lot of, you know, reproduction of, you know, North Coast Native artwork. Today, we look at that as more appropriative. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was introducing this kind of large national audience to this aspect of, you know, Canadian culture, Canadian identity, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So she, she played a role in that. But I think, to me, the more powerful phase is where she's really connecting with the natural world in her later period. We now know, as science has shown us, that forests are vast, connected communities that communicate, that cooperate, that can listen, smell, and perhaps even think. They have networks of fibers and fungi, a way of sharing resources like water and sunlight. But before these discoveries, Carr intuited that web of life and captured it on paper and canvas in her own unique way. She wrote, I am always asking myself the question, what is it that you are struggling for? What is that vital thing the woods contain, possess, that you want? Why do you go back and back to the woods unsatisfied, longing to express something that is there? Her red cedars undulate with life like living muscle. Her skies and light are complex actors and have vibrancy like a painting by Van Gogh. The liveness in me loves to feel the liveness in growing things, she wrote. She felt the connection of things. A biographer, Dora Shadbolt, wrote that Carr had managed to, quote, hang on to a vestige of primal spirit affinity with all the forms of creation. She said Carr had created a Pacific mythos. I feel also that she captures something deeper than 
just sort of what the trees look like, or it's it's like what the forest feels like. It's it's something, yeah, almost spiritual. Or it, she was able to really capture this sense of place in a way that's almost kind of hard to describe unless you're looking at it and you've spent time in these forests, you know, because they are alive and we know that, but it's somehow the livingness or the liveness of the tree itself, but also essentially the energy of the place that is many things and one thing. Um, Yeah, Uh, yeah, well said. And her paintings, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, she will paint individual trees, she'll paint forests, she'll paint the different moods of the coastal rainforest. Some of her paintings are kind of almost tomb-like or have a dark, enclosed feel. She also was able in that period to kind of find this electric energy between the land and sky. Mm. Her her sky pictures often have a, a kind of a vibrational attitude. Mm. Mm-hmm. And one of the yeah. things I think is is really interesting about her work is that she wasn't afraid to look at places that were scarred, mm, the yeah. places where, you know, human beings had treated the forest really badly. Some of her paintings include gravel pits oh. or yeah. clear cut, and she still found life there. You know, the paintings, you know, in some cases there might be a clear cut with a spar tree that was left. A spar mm-hmm. tree was a tree that cables were hooked to while they were hauling logs and destroying mm-hmm. others so often in a in a clear cut you might find a, a tall single tree remaining mm-hmm. kind of in the middle so you know she might have painted something like that and she could shows this sort of connection almost electrical connection between the spar tree and the sky and then this this sort of devastated landscape but she expressed in her writing this hope that mother nature was going to take care of it eventually you know, that eventually it was going to heal. It was going to be covered over. It was going to be, and at least that was, you know, she was expressing, I think, a belief and a hope in the power of nature to to heal. But she also wasn't discarding it. It wasn't like she was obsessed with, oh, it has to be pristine nature. That's the only thing. You know, when you think about a, a lot of the early landscape paintings of the Northwest, they were painted in that kind of 19th century romantic, we're going to make the mountains look like Switzerland. And you know, mm-hmm. we're going to show it at sunset, this prettifying of the wild, almost the taming of the wilderness. She she wasn't taming it. Yeah. You know, she she was letting it be frowsy. She was letting it be complicated. And then trying to express that visually. We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy-efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. 
If you live in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska Airlines is your go-to when it's time to go. Alaska has the most nonstop flights from the West Coast, serving more than 120 destinations across the U.S., Mexico, Canada, Costa Rica, and Belize. On top of an unbeatable onboard experience, Alaska has the most rewarding loyalty program in the sky. As a mileage plan member, you'll watch the perks fly in. And now, as part of the One World Alliance, you can earn and redeem Alaska miles to more than 1,000 destinations worldwide. Ready to go global? Visit alaskaair.com now to land a low fare and the best care in the air. She wrote, I'm always asking myself the question, what is it you're struggling for? What is that vital thing the woods contain, possess, that you want? Why do you go back and back to the woods unsatisfied, longing to express something that is there? I found that quote just really powerful. I mean, I think that's what artists often do. They're often obsessed with something and trying to get it right, trying to Mm -hmm. capture it, trying to convey it, trying to say it, trying to put words to it. And I think most artists and writers feel that they never quite make it. They never quite get there. Mm -hmm. It's always a little ahead of you on your best days. On other days, it's... (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, uncatchable, right. <laughs> undescribable. Yeah. And that's one reason this body of work in, in kind of later life really fascinated me was you can see some paintings feel repetitive. It feels like, no, I didn't quite nail it. I'm going to go back and do it again. And do, mm. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to try a slightly different iteration or a different angle or... You know, and so that really struck me because I I think that's something that a lot of artists feel and describes that method. But also you can really see that if you get a a book of Emily Carr's art, you can see a kind of repetitiveness of certain things as she's going back to the woods, back to the woods, back to the woods. And I think, you know, I think what she was trying to get is something that's very difficult to express. And it's sort of like, well, if you're a person who has spent time in those kinds of environments and has felt the inexpressible feeling of beauty, of connection with nature, of energy, which I think a lot of people here in the Northwest do, or it's certainly that's what they're looking for, mm-hmm. you know, and she was finding it in her own in her own way. And I think that really, you know, that really speaks to me. Yeah, I, I think the video you said that as artist Georgia O'Keeffe is to flowers, Carr is to our trees. I mean, I really felt that way. You kind of look at the two artists work together. They have maybe a, a similar feeling where there's these rich colors and kind of striking contrast, but also this. Yeah, the sort of deeper sense of connection to the thing that they're painting somehow. I think that's really true. I, I read that Georgia O'Keeffe didn't like to be thought of as the the flower painter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and for all I know, uh, you know, Emily Carr may not have liked being the tree painter. Mm. <laughs> I mean, no artist likes to be pigeonholed and, yeah. and you know, the, the work. And so, you know... With When doing this video, my intention was really to just do 
really a personal appreciation. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carr is well-known in Canada, extremely well-known in, in uh, British Columbia. But boy, south of the border, it's not. You know, we have a whole cadre of artists that we think of as Northwest artists. There's the Northwest Mystic School, for mm-hmm. example, which is Mark Toby, Paul Horiuchi, Morris Graves. I mean, there's a whole school of these kind of early and mid 20th century artists who forged a kind of regional modernism. And a lot of it became nationally and internationally recognized. You know, starting in like the 50s, people in New York and other places started writing about. And they were drawing on, you know, the inspiration of the landscape, the inspiration of indigenous people, the Asian influences. And that was happening in art and architecture. And there was this whole way that there was, partly because of our quasi-isolation in this region, there was just sort of developing this sense of a Northwest school of art. Carr was a little connected to it in that she communicated with and met Mark Toby. He was aware of her. She was aware of him. So there was some connection there. But I think the view in in Seattle, you know, really focuses on the sort of the artists that were here in the Puget Sound region. Some of them came out of uh, WPA projects uh, during the 40s. And, you know, by the early 1960s, they were, you you know, the region was starting to showcase these artists. They were getting attention in New York and that kind of thing. She brings a, you know, a really different feel to that range of Northwest artwork seen from the sort of American perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, I mean, there may be people who will look at her her body of work and disagree. Mm. But that's that later period is what really resonates, I think, mm-hmm. to, to me, and really embodies that. One of uh, her biographers said that she created a, a basically a kind of Cascadian or Pacific mythos. Mm. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the aspects of the sort of unspoken spirituality in the work, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, the Pacific Northwest is sort of famous for having a large percentage of people who don't belong to any religion, don't go to church. Mm-hmm. Um, they're called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Oh. <laughs> so when, you, when, when they're yeah. surveyed, they check none under religion. And the Northwest has been called the nun zone. I wasn't raised with any religion, and I, I feel like that's always been my most, you know, feeling of connectedness and sort of that's like I and many people, I think that's why part of the reason why we stay in the Seattle area or the, you know, Pacific Northwest in general is just the access to that. You know, it's just, yeah, part of our religion, you know. <laughs> you know, Annie Dillard wrote a wonderful book about her time on Lummy Island. Mm-hmm. And of course, she, you know, has been a fabulous nature writer wherever she's been, you know, but her book, Holy the Firm, captures aspects of the San Juan Islands and the experience of living in that kind of environment extremely poetically and well in places. You know, with John Muir, I mean, he came from a religious family. His father was a preacher. And, you know, he became evangelical about nature and its spiritual importance, you know, and, and it's easy to see when when John Muir was traveling in the great redwood forests, you know, he felt as if he were in a cathedral. Yeah. Yosemite Valley felt 
like a sacred place the same way people feel about uh, Notre Dame or, you know, great churches. And the columns of ancient temples are uh, thought to be, you know, based on trees mm-hmm. and design of trees. And so he wanted people to experience the sacredness of nature. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like Emily Carr is evangelical in any way. I don't feel like she's taking us by the, you know, by the the the, the scruff of our shirt or something and making us look at something or making us feel something. I feel like she has it's 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 personal. Mm-hmm. But the power of the personal has a large message. And I think these are things that are understood by indigenous people. Mm-hmm. I think these are things that are understood by some writers and painters who, you know, spend a lot of time out there and find, you know, find inspiration there. But I think it's going back. I think it's that liveness aspect, mm-hmm. the the sense that the forest is somehow intelligent, mm-hmm. that it's got some you know universal energy that that we ought to recognize and i think modern notions of that in her time period people viewed that as sort of quote primitive hmm. like i think nature worshiping you know it comes with a lot of baggage right cultural hmm. baggage john muir racist guy hmm. you know he wanted the woods preserved but he didn't want Native people to live there. He mm. he thought you know, national parks were great. You know, everybody should sort of enjoy the idea of national parks. People could visit, but you know, it was pretty an elite group of people who mm-hmm. could you know afford to go to a lodge and right. stay in a national park. So we're kind of relooking at a lot of a lot of that. You know, Emily Carr's talking about something that that everyone can experience. If much of her work captures, as one critic put it, the trembling luminosity of the sky, she also painted the intensity of the coastal forest that can seem like a living womb or tomb. Great art is unique, but speaks to a larger truth, often feelings that are hard to put into words or images. Before science uncovered secrets of living forests, Emily Carr's paintings captured their essence and their knowing. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback.
And if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.